Welcome to the Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast. And I am Zani, and I am very privileged and honored um, that uh, we have um, uh, Professor Penny Green uh, from the Queen Mary University of um, London. She is the head of the law department, and also she's a founding founder and director of the International State Crime Initiative and a, a leading a scholar on the subject of uh, state crime. She's done extensive field works uh, in different countries, including uh, Palestine, Turkey, uh, Burma, uh, my own. And she's uh, written uh, a number of like a very influential uh, research uh, reports on the genocide of the Rohingya people. And she also edits the um, state crime a series for Routledge and a, a member of the peer review college uh, in in United uh, in United Kingdom, and and Professor Green, um, um, uh, welcome. Um, can you tell us uh, in in a you know less academic way uh, because the audience is uh, um, you know the uh, um, the the general public what state crime means. And then sure. like, we can go into your research. Oh, thanks very much, Zani. And thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, I'm not sure it's uh, you know, quite what I deserve, but nonetheless, thank you. Um, so I think I, I, if I wouldn't, I'll take you back a little bit to why I became interested in state crime. <clears throat> I was studying criminology uh, at Cambridge, which was you know, one of the reasons I went there because there was one Marxist criminologist uh, Professor Colin Sumner, who was very influential in my early work. Um, and I'd gone to Cambridge specifically because of, of, of Colin. Uh, and I did my master's dissertation on the Prevention of Terrorism Act, 1975, 1974-75. Uh, and I was particularly interested in the way it was uh, used in a, in a, in a, a really um, prejudicial way against the Irish community, both in London and in Ireland, in, in Northern Ireland and in, um, in um, Dublin and, and Air, um, as we know it. And it struck me that uh, policing strategies that um, drew out of British colonial history were very, very evident, of course, in Ireland, because, of course, Ireland, Northern Ireland was a colony and um, Northern Ireland in particular was occupied by the British in the early 1980s when I was doing this work. Uh, I then went on to, to do a PhD and, and my PhD, because of the timing, um, was on the policing of the 1984-85 miners' strike. So I've always been interested in the state and the way in which the state responds to what is defined as dangerous or what is defined as, as criminal, because we all know that crime is a social construct. It is not something pre-given. And out of that, I, I always had a, a very significant interest in the state, but not, I wasn't interested in crime per se, but I was interested in the state and state power and how state power is exercised and the role of state power in propping up capitalist uh, relations of production. So that's really, that was my starting point. And so for many years I worked on, 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 on the state in, and, and look, examining policing and prisons and so on. But it, then working with my colleague, Tony Ward, we became very interested in the so-called transgressions of the state, state crimes, 
when the state deviates from its own um, um, set of rules and laws and, and the rules and laws that it expects the rest of its citizenry to abide by. And so Tony and I started to theorise state crime. And it was a very, um, in, in the UK in particular and in Europe, it was, there was no sort of sub-discipline of, of state criminality. Though in the States, people like Bill Chambliss had, had done some very interesting work on state crime. And so I think what the important, um, I suppose, definitional um, perspective that we arrived at was that we couldn't rely on the law. States make laws and therefore it doesn't make any sense for us to rely on state law because states notoriously are unwilling and unlikely to define their own activities and behaviours as criminal. And so the definition that we came up uh, with was state organisational deviance, basically. So where the state or state functionaries engage in deviant or criminal behaviour, not for the, the purpose of satisfying individual needs, but in the pursuit of state goals. And so the, the, the state is a corrupt or advancing various forms of, of violence uh, against uh, various populations to advance a particular state or governmental goal. And so that's the definition that we came up with. And really from that definition, that, that means that we don't rely on international law. We certainly don't rely on international institutions of justice to uh, seek redress. Because as you know, and we know, uh, that those uh, international institutions like the ICC or the ICJ move incredibly slowly and can only really deal with the after effects of the worst kinds of crimes and many, many years later, often decades later. So if, if you adopt our definition, it means that you understand state crimes as processes um, so that interventions can take place much earlier and you don't rely on the criminal justice process. Instead, we rely on organised civil society. And that can take many forms, of course. Um, but what organised civil society can do is name crimes that are going on. It can, it can identify crimes that are going on. You know, that's one of the reasons that human rights organisations are so important because they identify uh, human rights abuses uh, across the world, but in areas that we might otherwise not know about. Right. Um, and having identified and, and named these events as crime, and they won't always use the word crime, but that's our role, um, they can then seek to uh, resist those crimes, to challenge those crimes, to try and avert those, those crimes, to support victims, uh, and, and build movements against the kind of criminality that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, can I get you um, back um, track for a minute and um, uh, explain what you mean when you say crime is a social construct? Yeah. Uh, the, for, for the lay person, um, the, you know, the, what does it mean to say that, you know, a, um, a, a crime in, national international law 
it's a social construct. As you know, Daniel Feuerstein said, like, you know, genocide is a social practice. Yeah. And, and where does the social come from? And where does the um, construction come in? Well, I think we can learn a tremendous amount from history and from anthropology. So we know that there are behaviours and activities which until they belong or, 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 or are part of um, a social enterprise or part of a social structure are simply behaviours. So, you know, for, 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 for decades, uh, homosexuality was a crime in this country. It is no longer a crime. And that, de that has depended very, very much on, uh, on the gay uh, liberation movement and on challenges by civil society to people's sexuality and, and, and the way in which people can live. But if we look at different, you know, a whole range of different societies, we can see an, or, or sort of the development of early capitalism. Um, where fraud was a was a um, or the, was actually counterfeiting counterfeiting of money was a, a crime punishable by death because it cut against the grain of, of newly evolving capital and and that was seen as probably the most heinous of all crimes more heinous than murder in many respects so crime is a product of the economic political and social realm in which we live and so historically and anthropologically in different kinds of societies, different behaviors challenge the social structures that emerged and those social structures may be different. Right, but you know, that's on the individual level when you say, you know, fraud or like, you know, uh, not uh, paying back debts, yeah? Um, and and that, that kind of like, um, quote unquote, deviant social or economic behavior, um, is individualized at the level of, uh, you know, individuals. But we, we have seen over and over again the, um, you know, the very same state that criminalizes and holds to account individuals for their economic uh, deviance, if you will. Uh, bailing out, you know, to the tune of billions or even trillions of dollars in pound, the uh, you, you know the the fraudulent economic behavior of corporations. You know how do we square that? You know on one hand we've got a state that is enforcing relentlessly tax frauds. Uh, you know the the failure to pay um, a mortgage. That you know the individual failings while defending, protecting, and even, you know, bailing out organizational deviance, you know, the corporate crimes. Yes, I, I mean, that's, abs that's absolutely right. And we can, we can look at, crime is generally, by, is individualized by the state. That is, that is one of the strategies. Um, so in fact, if we, if we look historically at the emergence of the police force in this country, it, it, the police force developed solely to monitor and control working class movements. That was its purpose. And so we can see that here you have, and so you, you, you develop, you know, a criminal law develops, particularly in the, in the, in the arena of um, theft, to challenge those who, who undermine the economic system to some extent. But of course, you know, we live under, you know, a capitalist system and, and our laws, effectively, we can't, you know, there's a tradition 
particularly in law schools, of talking about the separation of powers and that the law is somehow above politics, separate from the political process or separate from the economic process. But, you know, we only need to look to a, a solid Marxist analysis to understand how interlinked the law is and how central and, and the law is a product of the economic system under which we live. And so the law is primarily about defending um, capital. Now, it's moderated because, of course, we have an advanced sort of uh, democracy and um, it won't always be crudely seen to be supporting capital and it will advance the interests of minority groups at different times. But, but fundamentally, anything which begins to challenge the capitalist, capitalist relations of production um, will be deemed as criminal. And so that's one of the things that was so interesting about the miners' strike and why Thatcher's government, the Tory government of the time, um, clamped down so hard on striking miners because and criminalised them. They were de de you know, depicted in the, in the right-wing media as, as, as complete threats to our way of living. They were nothing but uh, violent thugs and so on, where the reality was that that's nothing, that was, that was nowhere near the truth. And that these were people, organised workers, defending their jobs, defending their communities, defending their ways of life. So the idea that there is somehow a separation of, of law and the criminal justice process and, and politics and economics is a false so, so well, I mean, if if criminal or you know a, a, a behavior, individual behavior deemed deviant or criminal, or you know uh, against uh, you know obviously um, uh, in violation of law, it um, is a social construct. But also at the same time, you you know you mentioned the uh, law as a product of politics. You know, the, another form of construct. You know, so so we are looking at a scenario where one construct is elevated above the other with the backing of the assemblage of um, you know um, institutions that we call state you know uh, enforcing uh, you know one construct against the other and so you also mentioned um, you know the minor strikes in the mid 80s here under thatcher uh, uh, government but you know the um, I, I think the uh, there is also a, a parallel case in the United States going back all the way to 1920s interwar years. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, at the time the president, and he was an intellectual head of uh, Princeton University and friends with um, you know, uh, John D. Rockefeller. Uh, the, Wilson, at the request of his friend Rockefeller, um, owners of mines and oil fields, you know, send in National Guards to kill, you know, scores of uh, striking miners in Colorado. So, you know, these are like capitalist societies, economies, where states are essentially categorically uh, working so closely with the money interest. And, and how does that inform your work um, when it comes to international state crime, you know, taking the conversation out of the UK national context to you know, larger, um, uh, the, you know, uh, the grave crimes, um, the crimes against humanity, war crimes, uh, genocides. Well, I suppose, you know, I absolutely agree that um, when we talk about state crime, that, you know, the, the generic, the umbrella is effectively crimes of the powerful, and that includes corporations. And so that, that you know, 
the two are, are so often linked and there's a whole area of study called state corporate crime, which my colleague Tom McManus is particularly involved in and, and Chris, Chris Laslett. Um, so I think it's very important to, to look at the relationship and whenever there is a state crime or whenever there is a corporate crime, we need to look at the relationship between the corporation and the state or the state and the corporation. And sometimes one will facilitate and, and, and sometimes one will initiate. So I think it's it, that, that you're absolutely right to draw that, that connection. Um, and then I think that, I think that it's, it is interesting, I think, to be, as, an, as a scholar, one of the reasons, you know, that we, that globalization has, has enabled in some senses scholarship to transcend the local, to transcend the nation, the borders of the nation state. Um, you know, when I was a student, it was, you know, there weren't the resources to, to travel around the world. It was, it was much more difficult. We didn't have the internet and so on. Um, but once those things open up, and one can start to make connections between uh, atrocities in one country and in another and start to, to, to theorise and compare and contrast and build a, a broader picture about um, um, the kinds of crimes that, that we're interested in. Uh, it, it, it allows for, I think, a much more or an overarching understanding of what's going on. We don't leave it at the local. Um, and we do make the connections. And that's one of the, the great things of organisations like Amnesty International in particular, was able to, you know, in the early days, in, in the 70s, looking in countries like Brazil and Argentina, looking at the role of dictatorships and, um, and, and gathering testimony from victims of those um, terrorist regimes. And, and then as, as globalisation has developed, we've been able to pull a lot more data together and, and to say something more significant, I think, about the nature of these regimes and their relationship to, to state criminality and resistance as well, because resistance is absolutely central to us understanding what's going on around the world. Without, without civil society, without resistance, without trade unions, without organisations which are fighting back against state repression we wouldn't know what we know about right. state criminality right i mean you i'm glad you mentioned um, amnesty international and the work um, that um you know uh, it has been doing for decades and um uh, the uh, i was uh, working with the uh, u.s uh, amnesty international um particularly it's a midwest a region out of chicago uh on on the economic uh, or consumer boycott of uh, you know, companies investing in Burma at the time. This was in the mid uh, 1990s. And uh, you know, the uh, headquarters in London uh, was extremely reluctant to get involved, to even start a um, letter writing campaign targeting uh, corporate CEOs and you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, boards of uh, trustees and uh, companies, uh, the directors in companies and, um, do you see, um, and also I think like, uh, you know, naming crimes, so you mentioned that, you know, that, you know, a naming crime becomes a part of um, the, um, the work of normative uh, activists, uh, people who operate on, you know, in accord with certain like humanistic norms where human beings are central, not the profit or cap uh, logic of the capital. 
But Amnesty, as well as Human Rights Watch, um, you know, in specific cases of atrocity crimes involving, say, either Rwanda or Burma or even like Bosnia, they, they have shy away from, you know, naming the crimes simply because they wanted to maintain a seat at the table. They wanted to maintain, uh, a, quote unquote, um, respectability in the eyes of the, the very states that are least prepared to name the crimes of other states. You know, mm -hmm. how, how do you reconcile the, the good work that Amnesty does or Human Rights Watch and, and uh, global human rights community in general and their reluctance to actually call a spade a spade when, you know, it is yeah. so vital to do so? Yes, it's a really good question, Zani. But I think that the what, what's at issue here and it comes back to law a little bit because organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and so on are very legally framed. They see the world in terms of legal reform, the kind of change that they want to events and want to activate and, 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 and the changes that they want to be part of are changes to laws, changes to international laws, changes to the practices of states within certain boundaries. They are not revolutionary organizations. They're not political organizations. They take human rights out of the political and the economic frame, and they try to treat human rights as separate. And, and if that's the case, then you are working within very tight parameters. And, and plus, you, intellectually, you know, like taking human rights out of law uh, and structures that, you know, enable the, uh, the violations of rights and, uh, you know, um, the dish out of uh, harm to human persons. I mean, it is both conceptually and empirically a farce because, you know, if you apply for, say, like, you know, charity status within the uh, uh, UK to the Charity Commission, uh, the you know there are guidelines saying human rights cannot be political you know it, you know it, it's i mean law itself is a product of politics you know i mean like you mentioned like hom um, homosexuality being um, you know once that criminalized you know the uh, the the, the uh, uh, alan turing um, the who uh, broke the uh, enigma code and gifted us basically the uh, um, modern computers. He was criminalized, and he committed. He took his own life in this country. Yeah, and um, you know, the, by the same, to, uh, you know, the conversely, um, the slavery was constitutional and legal across basically European civilization. Yeah, that was slavery was legal. That's why there was a famous quote by uh, Martin Luther King, saying, "Like, don't ever forget that everything Hitler did was legal or lawful." Yeah. And then so, uh, I mean, we, we cannot operate with this farcical notion that human rights are not political. No, and I think that's why we have to understand that these organizations have very significant limitations. And so some of the research that they do, their on the ground research can be very revealing and very, very useful. I mean, we, we draw on it all the time at the International State Crime Initiative, but it has its limits. Um, and, and we can't expect, I mean, amnesty continue to describe the genocide of the Rohingya as a form of apartheid. Um, human yeah, apart the, the, the word apartheid was used by journalists back in 1978 to describe the situation. Amnesty woke up 40 years later. You yeah. know, this is like, you know, 
the the Latin American, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of like a, a surrealist fiction that Amnesty was writing, apartheid yeah. after forty years. Yes, yes, and 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 other organisations, you know, I th Human Rights Watch still doesn't describe what has happened to the Rohingya as a genocide, or, and, and most organisations resisted very um, forcibly the definition. And you remember when we were at the LSE at, at that particular conference on on the Rohingya that you organised, um, very few people were prepared to accept. Uh, and felt uncomfortable, very uncomfortable about describing it as genocide. Because for them, genocide is a legal concept uh, determined, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a convention uh, and it, a genocide from that perspective is not a genocide until a court of law has deemed it as such. And if you take that approach, then you can't intervene at a certain point and say this is a genocidal process which is why Daniel Fierstein's um, approach uh, and Greg Stanton and anybody and, and, and those of us at ISKI who adopt a stagist approach or at least a process approach um, to understanding um, genocide or understanding most forms actually of, of horrendous state violence you know you can't commit torture um, without some some background of dehumanization stigmatization of the group that is to be tortured you know you have to understand these these because you know violence against another human being is sometimes very it's difficult for individuals to engage in it, it, it systematically it's it's not easy it, it cuts against the grain of the way we're socialized right. we're socialized to engage peaceably with our our neighbors and communities generally speaking and so, you know, when you start to see practices of stigmatization, it, alarm bells should go off because it's, and very clearly, and, and, and Fierstein has a very, very helpful um, approach to understanding the processes that have taken place against the Rohingya by the Myanmar state, all of which are genocidal in nature. Right. Um, and it's not simply the spectacularized acts of violence that we saw in 2016-17 or in 2012. Um, that, doesn't, that, that, that doesn't explain genocide at all. Right. We need to understand the process. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the, even, even within the academic community, uh, particularly among those who don't, you know, um, um, you know study um, atrocity crimes, um, you know, historically as well as contemporaneously, there has been a lot of skepticism about, you know, the, the use of the term genocide in reference to Burma or even like, you know, the, the places like West, West Bank and Gaza. If you adopt the process approach, um, then, then, then like, you know, everything starts to fall into places. Like, you know, in, in the way the original uh, the developer of the genocide, uh, Raphael Lumpkin, developed. Yeah? And uh, that's why, like, you know, Gregory Stanton, um, um, you know, quite uh, famously said that by the time uh, the courts arrived, uh, everyone's dead. So, oh, you know, right. And then so like, you know, what, it, it is an extremely um, self-defeating uh, approach to the application of the Genocide Convention, which is not simply punishment of the perpetrators after the crime was committed, but it was meant, it is meant 
to be also a tool to prevent atrocities from happening. That's why the convention is properly named, uh, you know, the convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. And so we have a situation where, you know, in, uh, academics and scholars and legal experts who should know better, but, you know, continuing doggedly to push for this genocides as events or genocides as something only the ICJ or ICC or special tribunal can determine to be, uh, you know, uh, the, the, what it says it is. What, I mean, what, what, what is your response to uh, the adequacy of law and international global justice system in response to um, these atrocity crimes that keep recurring around the world? Well, I think, it, you know, as a criminologist, we know, as a critical criminologist, we know that um, the criminal justice process does nothing but exacerbate crime or human misery. It, it, the criminal justice process is not designed in any way, shape or form to address the, 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 the fundamental features of our society which give rise to what we even understand as, as street crime, for example, or any form of crime. The criminal justice process is, is, is reactive and responsive, but it, it, it comes in you know, the best way to address crime, even from the narrow way in which it is constructed in law. The best way is to invest in housing, to invest in jobs, to make people's lives worth living. I mean, to give opportunities for young people, to improve the education system. These are the social um, endeavours that uh, will, will, will make a difference to, the, to whether or not people deviate from norms which make living together much easier. And the same applies, in fact, to when we think about crimes of the powerful. If we want to address those crimes, the the institutions of uh, the international institutions of justice aren't, aren't capable of addressing them as as you've just described they're capable of intervening years decades later uh, and even then they will punish one or two individuals we will not see the, the, the you know pressure to uh, address state structures inside myanmar for example <laughs> That that's not what these institutions are about or what they can conceivably do. So I think, you know, in terms of if, we, if we're thinking about the role that these, these institutions and international law play, um, in many sense, and this is pretty controversial, but in some senses they prop up what's happening. They, 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 they contribute. They, um, if you have a situation in which... Uh, the wheels of justice are so slow and the United Nations refuses to acknowledge a genocide is happening and rather calls it other, other things, uh, ethnic cleansing and so on, which, which don't place any um, obligation on them to act, uh, then they become part of the problem. Right, that's why I think that you know we ha we have this especially created office, um, the office of the special advisor on genocide, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, pre prevention at the United Nations that came after, you know, the uh, the R Rwandan and uh, you know Bosnian um, or Serbian genocide at, uh, in in Bosnia uh, took place. 
And uh, apparently some of the people that helped create it, uh, you know, helped create the office and then stay informed about the development since, said that, you know, there is an unwritten or even clearly stated um, prohibition that, that the very office, you know, created to monitor signs of a, a new genocide mm. is prohibited from ever using the term genocide to you know to 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 alert to the to the world yeah um so we have a situation where as you said um you know the criminal justice systems um make things worse yeah and and then like you, you also uh, you know uh, argue uh, as an alternative um you know civil society uh, you know alternative to the uh, state's wrongdoings yeah and but but isn't isn't we are we are still as people between rock and the hard place because in places you know like we've got like a leading um the human rights organizations that strip the uh, you know human rights of any political agency or political potency to be effective you know a defender of human rights and then we then like we have an interstate system that pay lip service to we the people and you know sustainable development and all that, but nonetheless, uh, all these states they they bend together, you know even in most atrocious cases like Burma or you know Israel, yeah, and uh, these are states that have never been held to account despite resolutions after resolutions. Uh, based on you know your work in Palestine and other play, uh, you know uh, the, the Places, including Turkey as well. Can you talk about um, where the failings of this interstate system and where the inadequacies of, you know, the civil society that we both see as an alternative interface? Sure. Well, I think I think we have to be we have to approach civil society. I mean, for, 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 for us at, at ISKI, for example, civil society is our best bet in terms of, of resisting state criminality. But we can't, be, we can't romanticize civil society because we, you know, we know that much of civil society inside Burma is reactionary. Um, or and, genocidal, I would say. And, I mean, yeah. I'm from that place. You, I can see. Yes, exactly. It is a it, it's a it's complex. We can't, um, you know, organisations form and and band together, not always for um, noble causes. And certainly, um, to, the, the, how we started the International State Crime Initiative was really through a grant um, that was designed to investigate the role of civil society in resisting state violence and corruption. And so it was a, it was a, a cross country. We, we had, we, we investigated six different countries. We had um, postdocs in, in the field doing lots of research, gathering information on a whole range of civil society organizations, small and large and urban and rural. Uh, and the, and in, in a very in a wide variety of countries, and Burma was one of them. Um, but we found that you know in Tunisia, for example, you'd have some marvelous human rights organisations, people who had 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 operated under the most brutal regimes, who'd been subjected to torture um, and all forms of surveillance and violence. 
the yes. ben, ben Ali who had to flee the country. Under Ben Ali, under mm. Ben Ali. Uh, and yet, and also Borgiba, but also, but, 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 but yet still held extremely um, religiously formed um, prejudices against homosexuality, for example, and would not defend um, the homosexuals who were being, for example, um, um, attacked on the basis of their sexuality. So they are ambiguous. Civil society is an ambiguous force. And Gramsci talks extremely well about, about, about civil society, the way in which it creates a, an arena of struggle, um, but in, in fact is very much, very often tied to uh, the ruling elites in different, in different ways. So we have to be, I think, alert to the ambiguity and the problematic nature of civil society. But from our perspective, uh, it is incredibly valuable in isolating, uh, identifying, um, naming and resisting various forms of state criminality. Now, in terms of, I think we need a different kind of political force if we want to really seriously address right. the ills of capitalism, for example, and, and, and all of the, the, the multi-faced ills of capital. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you look at, um, let's say, Adam Smith's writing, um, that, you know, the, as early as the mid-18th century, that's about 250 years ago, you know, the e. E. I mean, Smith would not be considered a revolutionary, um, you know, a moral philosopher. He, he was a, a, a Scottish liberal. You know, he identified the, uh, you know, the eternal union between money interest and the political interest. You know, I mean, Catholic Church uh, failed to create this eternity of um, human marriage and union, but capitalism and state seem to be wedded eternally, yeah, everywhere in the world. And what we are seeing is the uh, replication of, uh, you know, the uh, Europe-based and Europe-developed system of governance where uh, citizens are simply to be controlled, to be extracted labor. So what we are seeing from my perspective, you know, using Burmese example as well, so not, not simply a repressive state uh, coming up with repressive laws and enforcing them uh, in the service of state power, but it's as you know the state is also um, in the economic sense predatory and collect you know uh, the, the, towards anything that moves and valuable and so how how do we I mean how do we get out of this situation where interstate systems can be considered Neanderthal you know in the sense that the human interest and human well-being are not driving policies. But when, when like UN and national governments, you know, resort to the, the discourse of economic growth, yeah, that is not about humans, you know. We don't need 20 pairs of underwears or bras or, you know, five pairs of like glasses. But, but that's what we are encouraged actively to do, to go and overconsume in the name of growth. So we've got the problem you know, moving into the, uh, you know, uh, into the inter interstate system where, you know, these behaviours are encouraged. Yes, I think, you know, I think Karl Marx's Das Kapital should be absolutely um, mandatory reading 
for all final year students at, at some level, or, you know, abridged versions, but reading groups and so on. We need to have, you know, I think part of the, uh, part of the problem is that this sort of, we're overloaded with information, but people don't have uh, the frameworks, I think, to understand with any sense of overview, uh, a worldview. And, and to, to, you know, there was a, there was a, I remember in the 80s, there was a, a sort of a, a real kickback against what was seen as globalizing theories or a grand theory. So, you know, the likes of Marx and so on were, uh, were really relegated to the back blocks because, um, you know, people focused on, it was, a, it was a period of identity politics. I mean, we see that now, I think, too. But the f focusing on the narrow, focusing on the local, focusing on identity rather than the fundamental um, understandings of the way the economic and political world works. I think we need grand theory. Grand theory helps us interpret individual acts of atrocity or individual acts of theft, or in individual acts of predation by states, I'm talking about now, or corporations. But it helps us understand them as part of a broader picture. We can't just eliminate them through uh, human rights campaigns. We won't eliminate these kinds of state crimes through individual campaigns. Yeah, it's but, not enough. But, but, sorry to interrupt, but, but what, when you have, a, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winning Amnesty International or like Human Rights Watch with hundreds of millions of dollars of endowment from, you know, Soros or Rousing Foundation or whatnot. These are two premier institutions in the world. And then you've got institutions like International Crisis Group. And then none of these, you know, leading uh, institutions push for any structurally conceptually progressive agenda yeah but but, but they they have almost monopoly over you know what is human rights and what human rights movements should look like yeah. yeah and and so i think the um you know the i i, I totally agree with you you know uh, the with the need uh, to sustain the uh, the grand narratives as a conceptual framework to make sense of the world around us or uh, you know the world we I mean, we have a serious problem. You know, I, I spent um, a number of years on the margins of uh, uh, Oxford um, um, as a visitor. Um, out of the 30 plus colleges, um, there would not be a single reading group that would engage with Marxism. You know, like Isaiah Berlin, uh, the founder of um, uh, Wolfson College at Oxford University, you know, the Russian liberal, um, um, uh, the philosopher, he said, you can disagree with Marx, but you cannot not engage with Marx. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Now, I think it's interesting. I think that's really interesting, Zani, because I remember teaching um, Marxist criminology to my, my students. I, my first permanent post was... Um, Is it a King's? No, my first permanent post, after a postdoc at LSE, I then went to Southampton University. And I remember teaching a class, and I used to always teach a couple of classes on Marxist criminology. And, and my, my, my best students would say, yes, absolutely agree, that makes so much sense, but it will never happen, or we can't do it, or it's too hard. And I think that's part of the problem, because human rights, to be in favour of human rights, that requires nothing. It requires no... Um, effort 
on 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 part i mean we see this this sort of click activism or cl whatever it's called these days it's yeah, very yeah. easy to support human rights you know at, at, at amnesty you know i had many friends who worked at amnesty and they would report some very very right-wing people work at amnesty for example it's not you can be right wing and support human rights it's not incompatible but when you start to think about socialism or you know socialist relations of production or a challenge to the way in which a capitalist economy operates and all that flows from a capital capitalism requires inequality it requires exploitation you can't have profit without exploitation and so it's much harder the the, the project becomes much harder i think and and too big and people people like to be able to focus on a single issue or they like to be able to focus on something that they can make a donation to or they can write a letter to in, in relation to or be part of something so i think the task is is fundamentally political but it's a big task it's a, right. it's a difficult task. yeah i think the um, you know the black lives movement and uh, you know the the leading uh, the the theorists and um, uh, intellectuals will argue that you know <clears throat> the um, Marxian analysis uh, um, and also other radical economic analyses uh, lack the um, you know racial elements because capitalism is racialized. Yeah? Uh, if we look at the the growth of uh, capitalism, which came out of a small set of Western European uh, economies, they benefited for over, let's say, 350 years of essentially free labor out of millions of Africans that have been both turned into nothing but a sheer labor force and concurrently uh, properties. Yeah. And then like, you know, like I came from a, a former British colony and uh, we have um, in Southeast Asia and South Asia, uh, you know, um, all the top Western European colonial powers, you know, in places like Indonesia, they were there for 330 years. The same goes for uh, Philippines. You know, the, even the country's name after the, uh, the King Philippe II of Spain. And then so these forces that created capitalism, you know, the, the colonialism, you know, the uh, genocides of the Aborigines in Australia, uh, the, the, the continental grab of um, uh, the, the Americans, right? Um, so, so from the perspective of those who are not white, um, the, the, you know, race is a critical pillar because labor isn't simply colorblind. Labor was colored. Yeah? No, you're absolutely right. And as an Australian, somebody who grew up in Tasmania, where an appalling genocide, I mean, well, all genocides are appalling, that's, you know, that, that doesn't require an adjective. But the, 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 the genocide of the Tasmanian Aborigines is, 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 is rooted in my history and my past. And in Australia, it's a settler colonial state where um, unlike Burma, um, where, <clears throat> you know, in, in, in Australia, Aborigines have been absolutely relegated to the margins, um, live in very, very difficult circumstances. There was a history of slavery inside Australia, indentured labour. You know, we have uh, shocking images of, of Aborigines chained together around trees and 
um, and there were uh, you know, massacres and, and, and so on. Australia, the Australian capitalism was built on the backs of the exploitation uh, and the destruction of Aboriginal culture. Um, and I think um, we, and we haven't made tremendous progress, unfortunately, we, the, the, you know, in, in, in a country like Australia, where the, the, the black voice is rarely heard. And I, I have some optimism with Black Lives Matter. Um, I think that it has gripped the, the, the pop, popular imagination in a way that I haven't seen, not, not even I think that the black civil rights movement did. I mean, I, you know, you talk to, you know, white people now who are reassessing everything about the way they, you know, they, they think, and that's a really good thing. Um, so I have some, some optimism. I hope that the momentum can be maintained. We, we know historically that there are various movements uh, and unless they are organized in a, a systematic way, they can just end up dissipating. And that's my, that is always a worry. Right. Um, you, I mean, from a state crime perspective, you mentioned that uh, the, um, the mainstream human rights uh, movement um, looks at um, legal reforms within these state structures, right, um, as a way forward. Uh, but recently, um, um, I have um, listened to a number of uh, talks and uh, interviews by um, Angela Davis, and uh, who, who like yourself, um, share your optimism, saying, saying that you know she's been around. She's like you know pushing seventies, and a former FBI fugitive, and uh, this iconic um, the black intellectual. Um, she said she's never seen anything as exciting as what she's seen now. You know, this is a woman who was involved with Black Panther, you know, grew up uh, as a young girl in the South, um, her friends being blown up in a church and that kind of, you know, a brutal, brutal racist violence against her, uh, the Black Americans. And so the, um, the, I think, I wonder if you if you would care to comment or you said like political imagination or popular imagination the 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 this movement captures or even indicates a shift in um, popular consciousness yeah if if you know laws and institutions are not going to reform without the um, popular demand, the first thing that demand needs to be rested on is the shift in consciousness and then you know the, I, I love football and so I, I was watching Premier League um, you know yesterday and and today every single game begins with taking the knee you know I mean that is massive you know these these are like million dollar players they, they you know they're not like average human rights activists like myself these are people who are super rich yeah, yeah and different colored but they're not they are above our economic league and these men taking basically they have instituted a new ritual that indicates that racism will not be tolerated and and so um where do we go from here in terms of um you know the pushing for more structurally and contextualized understood human rights as opposed to the rights of individuals, you know, which the, even the, the conservatives that maintain, you know, repressive structures can support. 
I think we have to, you know, acknowledge the limitations of, of what we're working within. You know, we aren't working in a, with, with revolutionary organisations at the moment. But I, you know, I am, I'm so encouraged. And I think that my faith is, in, is in, with young people because young people, I mean, I'm, more than ever, I'm trying to sort of keep abreast of social media. I'm, I'm, I'm reading a lot more um, and, I'm, and I'm monitoring what people are doing. Um, and it's very interesting, you know, my own daughter is disabled and the, the disabled community uh, have, have completely uh, allied themselves with the Black Lives Matter movement and are elevating the Black Lives Matter movement um, over and above, but, but they're recognising that their own struggle is interlinked. And I think it's that kind of interconnection which is going to be to bear the most fruit. Um, but I think I'm seeing changes in universities that, that we haven't seen. A, a lot of EDI work has, from my perspective in the past, been tokenistic and, 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 and far less meaningful than it should have been because it was driven from the top. Now it's being driven from the bottom. And I think this is fantastic. And I think that uh, we have to, all of us have to listen. We have to do a hell of a lot of listening. And then we have to do a lot of translating when we can. But we have to bring those young black people and, and young white people who, who are absolutely identifying with this struggle because, um, and, and we have to, we have to, take on board their ideas uh, because they, I think they are the future, obviously. But I think that the, the movement has a, a momentum, which I think may, is, is it's, it's, it's going to be tougher to, for it to dissipate than other movements, I think, because I think it has, people feel it in a visceral way that they haven't felt other, other challenges. So if I would compare it to the Occupy movement, which didn't have leadership, which was very powerful for a moment, but it, it completely dissipated. It's lost. It's gone. Whereas I think that there's something different about Black Lives Matter because it, because it is starting, you know, the idea of defunding the police. What an excellent idea. These are the things that um, we begin to challenge, we can take on board because this is about challenging the state in the most fundamental way. Um, and, and that's not what the Occupy movement did or other movements. So what's so valuable, I think, is that the Black Lives Matter movement is forcing us to address state institutions and state structures in ways that have other movements haven't. And that's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, speaking of state institutions, I mean, you're one of the um, higher education leaders uh, in this country. And, um, uh, you know, as the head of the uh, 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 law department and, um, you know, the public education in the um, in UK is the um, the vast majority of, um, you know, higher education sector, you know. Uh, the, 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 all the University of um, London uh, colleges, uh, including Queen Mary and the, uh, the Oxbridge and others. Um, do you see any attempt um, to decolonize curriculum? You know, the way in which criminology is taught, the way in which uh, history is taught, because, you know, as you know, um, in, in Australia, 
maybe um, you know your generation probably was not properly taught about the, uh, um, the uh, I mean brutal Australian history. That's why there was this uh, book by Henry Reynolds. Uh, I think that he's a colleague of yours, friends, um, um, which won the Historical Commission Award. Uh, why weren't we told about the basically the the you know the um, genocide? You know, taking thousands of children of kidnapping thousands of Aborigines children and making them white. Yeah, yeah um, we learned nothing of this. And, and and as I said, growing up in Tasmania, we were taught that the last Tasmanian Aboriginal was Truganini, and she was she she had died. The, the reality was that, in fact, there were many Tasmanian Aborigines. Um, they were paler skinned, but they were descendants of Tasmanian Aborigines. Uh, and yet there was this sort of weird, um, you know, there were no Tasmanian Aborigines, yet there, there were at one and the same time. Um, I think that that was um, really very extraordinary. And subjects, I mean, we were only taught about Aboriginal people or the Australian Aborigines in anthropology. If you chose to do anthropology or archaeology at university, that's where you might learn about Aboriginal culture. Um, but I think coming back to your point about decolonizing the curriculum, it's very interesting. And that's one of the things that our law school has committed to doing. We are reviewing our curriculum. But what we want to do is not start with the obvious subjects, which actually are interested you know we, we have a we have a, 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 a subject uh, law and legacies of, law and legacies of empire for example now that one will but we don't want students to simply learn about um colonial history and and the, the horrors of imperialism by taking that one elective course we're going to look at our core courses at criminal law at contract at tort at land law, all of these subjects uh, lend themselves to, to a different interpretation. We can use different authors. We can bring in material from Africa and, and so on. So I think it's absolutely fundamental that we, we challenge the core subjects in, in some senses. And so I think that, and we, we, I'm sure we are not alone as a university in and certainly in, in, I know that within the broader faculty, um, many other schools are, are doing similarly and have been doing for some time. Law is always a bit, little bit slower to the table sometimes. Um, and and we, we feel, you know, um, that, that the core has to be taught as it has been because of the common law and statute and so on. So, but I think it's exciting. And I think from the discussions that I'm having with my colleagues, they are excited about this possibility as well. See it as essential but um, something new, and it will take some time. Right, yeah. Course, I mean, yeah. I mean, law is not simply slow. Law has been the instrument of the empire or the state, yeah? So in that sense, I mean, like, you know, in, in the curriculum of the field of sociology of curriculum, uh, there's something called like a mapping. And so, you know, essentially, everything can be linked up, you know. Uh, the, you know, just uh, if you're looking at passport, you know, the, 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 the historical context um, in which passports were invented, or even identification card, who carried the ID, what forms, you know. I mean, the slaves also had ID, except that their ID was like, you know, hot iron that's, you know, 
um, the, the the tattoo on their forehead or something like that. You know, the same with like the the, uh, the uh, Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And so, um, the, it's exciting. But at the same time, I think that, that where we are is uh, as a society, at least in Britain, is that uh, we have a vast majority of uh, you know highly educated British who still think um, the, the 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 you know the the Queen and the Empire are are things to be celebrated. And people like David Cameron, former Prime Minister, when he was in office, or that this buffoon like Boris Johnson, um, the who said uh, we need to you know promote. Um, uh, empire you know we need to, no 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 we need to celebrate it you know i mean like you know it's like you know as a um, the critical criminologist who specializes in uh, uh, genocide and other crimes against humanity and and other uh, crimes i mean like you know these like british prime ministers and elite class in britain saying that celebrate the imperial history it's like you know celebrate the death and the massacre and the loss of millions of you know brown and black and mixed people who perished within the British Empire as the Empire sucked everything out of their societies. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. And law and British criminal justice, British policing has played an absolutely, absolutely central role in the subjugation and repression of people who were colonized. Um, and, and, and not only British colonialism, we have Spanish and Portuguese and Israeli, you know, right. the, it, it, is, it, is, it is very widespread. And um, I think that the idea of celebrating, uh, like Australia Day, um, that, that just... Well, when, sorry, and when is the, what is the date, Australia Day? I mean, Nicole Kidman was doing this promotional, you know, she loves Australia and... Yes. It's like Meryl Streep out of Africa stuff. I don't. I cannot tell you the date. I, it's it's not a date that I have um, have, have memorized. It's not a day I have ever celebrated, um, and it's it's a day for mourning. Quite frankly, I mean, it's a day that we should be reflecting on our um, our brutal, violent past. Um, that's not to say that all Australians are complicit. I don't, I, you know, that's not what I would be arguing. But I think it's a day that we should be um, acknowledging the harms and crimes that were committed um, in the name of, of white people and white, white supremacy against black Australians. It's, it's like and, Columbus Day in the United States. Though. Yes. And yes. Um, the, the, my, uh, uh, my final question, um, uh, you know, I know you were nominated to be um, the uh, special uh, repertoire on the, uh, you know, uh, the occupied territories at uh, the Palestine by the United Nations. And uh, there have been like, an, uh, there were nasty campaign to derail it. And, uh, you know, uh, my understanding is that uh, you pull the um, nomination yourself because uh, you didn't want to... Um, uh, no. No, no, okay. no, I didn't put right, Yeah, correct me and um, explain, like, you know, um, the, the, the entire campaign, you know, sort of okay. like a below the belt thing. I was encouraged to apply by a former UN Special Rapporteur for the Palestinian Occupied Territories. <clears throat> and so I went through the process and the process is that you, um, you make the, the application and submit all your credentials to the United Nations um, um, Human Rights Council. And it's the president of that council who makes the ultimate decision. And um, 
I was then shortlisted along with, I think, five other people. Um, I was interviewed by five UN ambassadors, country ambassadors. That's, that's the process. Uh, and on the basis of the interviews, I was selected as the, um, the, 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 the council's nomination for the position. Uh, the, UN, uh, the UN Human Rights Council president at the time came under clearly a lot of pressure from both America and Israel um, and wanted to defer the decision because normally it's a rubber stamping, but not in the case of the UN Special Rapporteur for the Palestinian Occupied Territories, um, <clears throat> having been selected by um, a, a panel of five ambassadors. Um, and what the, the Human Rights Council does is that once they have made the nomination, they place your credentials, your CV and your, your application on the website, and then they leave it up for two weeks. And in that two weeks, basically, organisations like UN Watch, which, which, which is um, an organisation which monitors the UN for anything which criticises Israel, they, right. began, they launched a campaign. Um, the, it has a benign, benign name. It has a very benign name, and for some time, appallingly, it had the Rohingya um, genocide on the on its front web um, um, uh, web page, and uh, and yes, and and people were, were seduced into thinking it was a human rights organisation, which it is absolutely not. Nonetheless, they orchestrated a campaign. The campaign was vicious. I received hundreds of, of, of emails and um, tweets every day, um, some with death threats and so on. I mean, it was really uh, because I was seen to be pro-Palestinian, because I was seen to be somebody who wanted to defend the rights of, 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 of Palestinians. Um, and after two weeks, you know, I felt at, at some points like withdrawing. If, if this was to be the life one led as a UN special rapporteur, it was going to be pretty horrendous. And, 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 but I decided, no, I would stay. I would not withdraw my application. Um, and I know that some, um, that the Arab League organised a petition um, in, in my support. I had the support of two former UN special rapporteurs for Palestine. Uh, Richard Fork and John Dugard, and I had um, the backing of the Arab League and 152 states, I think, signed a petition in, in support of my nomination. But in the end, the um, president of the UN Human Rights Council decided that um, because I had supported, I, not that they ever communicated with me, ever, not once. Um, but I can only assume it was my support for the boycott, divestment, sanctions oh, movement. BDS. Uh, and I, I, that I have publicly supported BDS. Uh, that he refused to rubber stamp and, and support my application. And instead, he gave the nomination to the, the person who was second uh, on the list, who had not publicly supported BDS. So well, that's I mean the sad and sorry story of my attempt to become the UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Well, it's the, um, the you know, the, the, the laws for the campaigners uh, for the Palestinian. Um, but, I mean, your, your work continues. Uh, very, very finally, um, you wrote um, on Iski's site um, 
that um, the Burmese genocide perpetrators have gotten away with the crime. Can, can you leave us with your thought on why uh, you say that um, you know, the, the Burmese have gotten away with mass murder? Um, well, I suppose you know, there were various points in the process of the genocide against the Rohingya. Um, and the reason why they have been seen to have got away with, with genocide, the, the, the Burmese state, is because uh, there were various points at which the uh, international community might have intervened. So, so you know, the, the Burmese state had launched a massive stigmatisation campaign, you know, um, led by the monks, but very much supported by the likes of Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, they got away with um, then violence that was perpetrated against the Rohingya in 2012. Not a single person um, um, amongst the perpetrators was, was, was prosecuted. Um, the result of that particular stage in the genocide, the violence of 2012, meant that over 120,000 Rohingya were forced into horrible, horrible concentration detention slash camps. Uh, in just outside of Sitwe, the capital of Rakhine State. Um, you, you visited them yourself. Yes, I did yeah. um, with, with my team. Um, and the Burmese state got away with that. Um, and the international community were there in Sitwe, and we could talk a long time about what the international community did. But nonetheless, they got away with, with that violence and with the uh, creation of concentration camps in which the... Um, the, the Rohingya of, of, of Sitwe are uh, now languishing. Um, then they got away with the um, systematic weakening of this population. So they denied the Rohingya in the camps and in the prison villages which surrounded them. Uh, they denied them the right to healthcare. They denied them the right to education. They, they denied them the right, the Rohingya, the right to adequate food. They denied the Rohingya the right to livelihood. So they got away with that. Then they got away with the violence in 2016. And they got away with the violence effectively in 2017. Um, and so you have people at the ICJ arguing that because um, the, 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 the Burma and um, Bangladesh are talking about repatriation, it couldn't possibly be a genocide. Well, of course, that's an absolute nonsense. They've got a, so far, they've got away with destroying what remained of, of Rohingya villages. They've got away with trying to repopulate the state uh, demographic, you know, reorganising the demography of that state, um, replacing Muslim Rohingya with uh, Burmese Rakhine and so on, uh, Buddhist Rakhine. So they they have got away with it. It's done. There are some parts that are, that are continuing. The erasure of uh, of the Rohingya from the memory, if you like, the historical memory of the Burmese state is still continuing. And there is work still being done in terms of re reclaiming uh, for the state Rohingya land or for the Rakhine population. Um, that, that, that work continues. Uh, and in many respects, the, the genocide will continue whilst the, the Rohingya are in uh, camps inside Cox's Bazaar. And, and, and diaspora in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And in, you know, and in the very in diaspora. And so, so it continues. And the Myanmar state has succeeded. Uh, and they are not 
I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi is a pariah of sorts, but the international community continue to do business with, with them. And so in, in that sense, they have gotten away with it, yes. so to speak. Well, um, uh, Professor Penny Green, it's been a, uh, an honor and great pleasure speaking to you. It's very, very enlightening. And thank you very much. Well, thank you, Zani.